I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I always joke that I'm the worst kind of scientist of all. I'm a social scientist. What matters most? It's different for everyone. You're listening to Short Black. With me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. Today's guest is passionate about the environment, never takes no for an answer, and is the first female CEO of Australia's oldest museum. Well, it's my great pleasure to welcome to Short Black Kim McKay. G'day, Kim. Good to have you with us. Hello, Sandra. It's great to be with you. There's so many things I want to talk to you about, but let's start with your current role as the CEO and Executive Director of the Australian Museum. Now, you're the first woman to hold the position in the museum's 191-year history. Were you welcome with open arms or did you get a bit of resistance to your ideas, to your vision? Look, I think there was always some level of scepticism. I didn't have a museum background. I had been on the trust of the Australian Museum for two years, so I had some insights there, but I hadn't grown up in through my career in museums, so I think everyone was looking at me slightly strangely. It's quite a privilege, though, to be the first woman to be the director and CEO of the museum. I'm the 17th director since the museum was established in 1827. I think my predecessors were all scientists. I'm the first non-scientist as well. And I always joke that I'm the worst kind of scientist of all. I'm a social scientist by trainings. I think that uh, people were were inquisitive, really, and curious. And, and fortunately, uh, after six years in the role, I feel very much at home here. We've made major changes. And I really love working with the team here that we have 300 people who work for the Australian Museum and they're incredibly well qualified and experienced and really uh, give it their all. I'm just proud to lead this great team. Well, Kim, I remember when you were first appointed and it was a left field appointment for those in the science world, and yet you have accomplished so much. I can't believe six years has passed. Tell us about some of the big moments and items you're most proud of. Sure. Well, it's been a period of immense change, really, of transformation of the museum. And that's why I was appointed to be a change maker, to help transform the museum, to update it. And also because throughout my career, I've had a great affinity with science. Um, I spent many years in America working for National Geographic, where I worked with some of the world's foremost scientists and have always wanted to translate science to the community so people can understand it better. So my affinity with science, I think, fitted, but also my affinity with the community and education played a hand in that. So in that time, I realized that I need to to make some physical changes to the museum as well as some internal shifts in direction. So the first thing we did was to build a new entrance. Can you believe that the entrance had been on College Street in the old Barnett Wing, that beautiful sandstone facade for 145 years, and it was inaccessible for anybody with a pram or a wheelchair 
or if you had trouble getting upstairs. I was sitting here on one of my first days on the job and went, oh, my God, the entrance is in the wrong spot. So we built a beautiful accessible entrance pavilion called Crystal Hall. The wonderful architect Rachel Neeson designed it and it's won so many awards. It really is a lovely glass pavilion which captures light in a really special way. What it's meant is that as people come into the museum now, there's an accessible ramp. They have time to understand that they're in an important building, that what is housed here are the treasures of our nation dating back 193 years since we were established. And so building Crystal Hall was a little marker out there in the community saying we're changing. It was symbolic, Kim, and it was really important. But it's not an easy task to do. I mean, you had to convince the historians and those that protect these institutions in Sydney and in Australia that it was overdue for change and it was time. How difficult is it? Because first and foremost, it needs a bucket load of money and a bucket load of approvals. Well, the first thing, Crystal Hall wasn't as expensive as you might think. The budget uh, to build it was only $5 million. And uh, I met during my first week on the job with the state government architect, who was then Peter Poulet, and said, look, I think we should build something like this here to be the new entrance and to see if a piece of architecture could transform people's understanding of the museum. And he was 100% supportive straight away. And then from Peter, I went to see the powers that be in the department we then reported to. And I made them all stand up at at the table we were sitting at at the top of the MLC Centre. And we looked down on the museum. And I said, look at it. We need to update this. So within a week, Sandra, I actually had the money, which is unheard of. Better than that, we built it on time and on budget. So it showed to people that we could deliver a project like this that could be transformative for the museum. And it wasn't just building Crystal Hall. At the same time, we moved the cafe to the rooftop and where the cafe had been on the ground floor, we built a beautiful new gallery called Wild Planet, which has all of our taxidermied specimens over the years in it. That had the dual effect of not only creating a great fun gallery for children who could see tigers and rhinoceros and lions and bears and buffalo all in the one spot, but in addition to that, it saved our taxidermy collection, which had been in storage. And of course, you might remember your your mum or grandma's old fur coat that would hang in the wardrobe. And if it's not cared for constantly, it sort of eventually the pelt falls apart. That's what happened to my mum's fur coat back in the day. And uh, this is what can happen to taxidermy. So, in fact, by putting it out on display again, it saved the collection. And it's a very historic collection dating back to the mid-1800s in some cases. So it was fantastic to put over 400 specimens on display in the Wild Planet Gallery. And then, of course, we also built um, the new First Nations galleries, Garigarang Sea Country and Bayala Nuran Yarning Country. So two new Indigenous galleries for the museum, one of which tells the story of First Nations people and their fishing traditions and ocean connection. And the other one, which revealed a lot of stories, contemporary stories, as well as past ones about Aboriginal culture. It's one of the only places in Sydney where you can read about the modern day struggles in Australia. Just by bringing these new galleries, and we also built a new Pacific gallery. Our Pacific collection is one of the finest in the world. It has over 60,000 objects and specimens, and none of it was on display. These were all in the first couple of years. 
to show people that we were serious about changing and refreshing and transforming the Australian Museum for the future. You know, I say it's the Museum of Australia and the Pacific because that's what our collection demands. Museums are built around collections, which is something maybe the public doesn't at first recognise. We're a collecting institute in the natural history and cultural space. And of course, we became one very early on. In fact, we're the fifth oldest natural history museum in the world because Australia's natural fauna was so different from the rest of the world. And what, what was happening in the early 1800s after white settlement occurred is they started shipping back all these extraordinary animals. You know, our monotremes, like the platypus and the echidna, our extraordinary mammals here, kangaroos, koalas, you name it, wombats, cockatoos, all got shipped back to England in the masses, I might tell you. Thousands and thousands of specimens went back for study in the UK and in Europe. And it wasn't until the mid-1850s when a German curator director of the museum started called Gerard Kreft, who said, no, I want to keep these specimens here for study in Australia. And it was Kreft who introduced the formal study of science to the museum. And he copped a lot for that, I might tell you. He was quite an irascible figure, but he, um, he had become an evolutionary theorist. And in fact, in later editions of Darwin's book, Evolution of the Species, he acknowledges Kreft's contributions. Kreft named over 30 Australian animals, including the saltwater crocodile, the cassowary, and discovered the lungfish here, which is harks back to prehistoric times. Because Kreft was so prolific, he really did influence the understanding of evolution. But at the time, in the mid-1850s and 1860s, the trust of the museum were all creationists. And so I can just imagine the tension at the time between these very conservative trustees who were interested in science and nature, but by no means had embraced Darwin's theories at this time. But here's Kreft running the museum, espousing these new ideas. And so they fought constantly. In fact, they had a government inquiry into Jared Kreft, which means nothing much has changed in New South Wales. You know, if we don't like <laughs> we have an inquiry into them. And so here is Kreft having an investigation. The trustees claimed he'd stolen some specimens, which wasn't true. And the, the uh, inquiry found him not guilty of that. But they did find him guilty of two things. One was willfully smashing a fossil jawbone. I think his temper was such that he probably threw it at somebody. <laughs> and the other thing they found him guilty of was occasional drunkenness on site. And I can sort of imagine in those days the curator director lived on site at the museum. There were apartments here. Shame there isn't today. I'd love to live here. You know, he was here one night having barricaded himself into the museum because he and the trustees were fighting and they wanted to sack him but couldn't. So he literally barricaded himself in. And uh, the trustees hired two prize fighters from the local bazaar, they called it, which was actually in Hyde Park in the day. So if you imagine Hyde Park today originally, it was a racetrack. And along the racetrack came all the other things with it. So like almost a fairground, and there there was a boxing ring. So they hired two of these boxers who came over and broke down the door of the museum one night, found Jared Kreft sitting downstairs in his sitting room, reading a book. They picked up the chair he was sitting in and carried him out and put him on William Street. And he was never allowed back in the museum, which I think completely broke his heart. He loved this place. His 
contribution to this institution and to science in general was phenomenal. And now, of course, we have the Australian Museum Research Institute, which is one of the most highly regarded research institutes in the world specialising in biodiversity. What I love about you is the passion you always have for the museum. You don't do anything by halves. A critical part of your audience is kids. You started the free entry for kids at the museum, and that was a pretty important turning point. What made you do that? Well, I was very lucky, Sandra. And When I was five years of age, we moved to London. And so growing up in London, I got to go to some of the world's best museums. My mum and dad took me to the Natural History Museum and the British Museum and every other museum. In fact, every weekend, mum was determined that my sister and I got a good education. And she wanted to utilise the time we were living in London and England to expand our knowledge base. So virtually every weekend, we had to do a tour somewhere. (laughs) And then we got quizzed on it. So I was very fortunate that she was so determined to improve our knowledge base, even though sometimes I would have preferred, I think, just to be at home kicking around uh, playing. But uh, there we were off visiting historic sites across the UK. So I love museums from an early age. I was entranced by them. And kids these days are entranced even more with things like a night at the museum. A lot of people don't realise that you can spend a night at the museum. And for kids, it must be extraordinary. Well, we call that the dinosaur. (laughs) Basically, you get to sleep with the dinosaurs, which is just fantastic. You know, there's a lovely sweet spot when you're growing up where dinosaurs are everything. And I remember having that. I'm an aunt of three kids and um, now a grand aunt. And what a wonderful gift to give them to come and spend the night at the museum. There's nothing quite as spooky as walking around the museum with the lights out by torch and looking at all the exhibits and wondering if they're going to come to life overnight. I love it. I spend a lot of time in here at night on my own, though. I've got to tell you, when I'm working back late and everyone else is gone, it's just me and the security guards. And uh, walking through the museum in the dark with just seeing those little green exit signs in the distance can be quite spooky at times. Well, right now, the museum is closed for renovations. What will we see when it opens? Oh, look, I'm so excited by this. This is called Project Discover. It's our $57.5 million restoration project. So while the Crystal Hall said, look, we're changing and we're, we're doing things in a new way, and then we built the wonderful Westpac Long Gallery, which shows the 100 treasures of the museum in a new way, in that first museum gallery in Australia, this project really turns the museum into a significant civic space. The changes will be quite dramatic and exciting. Once you go through Crystal Hall and we've taken the back off that to open up the entrance, you'll be seeing not just new spaces to walk through, but a new grand hall in the centre of the museum. It's the length of three tennis courts. So it's quite extraordinary what we've done there to create a new heart of the museum, a central circulation space. You really know you're in an important building when you walk into that grand hall. We have a movable wall at the back of it where we can add additional exhibition space. And that's where the escalators are too now, down into our new temporary exhibition hall in the basement, which used to be storage space. So we've repurposed spaces within the museum to create these really new significant spaces. In the past, we'd lose out to Melbourne Museum, for example, because our floor loading wasn't strong enough, our ceiling height wasn't high enough and the floor space not big enough. Well, now we have 1,500 square metres of uh, temporary exhibition space that can take some of those really big exhibitions 
not just internationally, but ones we're creating ourselves. One of the initiatives that we've pioneered here is to tour our exhibitions. So we create wonderful exhibitions and we take them across the world ourselves. So you could be in any city in the world at a different time and now see an Australian museum exhibition. We plan to reopen with a really sensational exhibition we're bringing in. Let's say it falls into everyone's favourite category. The world over is dealing with COVID and, and I know that's affected a lot of the museum's actions. And You couldn't have picked a better time to have the museum under reconstruction. I know. I've had a lot of calls from people saying, how did you know this was going to happen? <laughs> it is a great advantage for us because we did plan to be closed, unlike most of the cultural institutions which have been really affected by the impacts of COVID. We'd actually planned and budgeted for this closure. You know, we thought the museum hadn't closed before, that this was the first time we were closing the museum on purpose. But boy, oh boy, it did. 1918, it closed for that big pandemic called the Spanish flu at the end of World War One, And uh, the museum was closed for a number of months during that period. So this is the second time in our history that we've closed during a pandemic, although this time our reason was major construction. It's given us the opportunity to really focus on the construction. I watched the new staircase being lowered in through the roof the other day in sections. That's probably one of the most exciting times in the museum's history. The staff have been able to both work on site, but mostly work from home as well, which has been terrific. So some of our scientists, of course, are on site all the time. They're doing experiments. You know, we do groundbreaking science here. I've got to tell you something. I'm just going to allude to it because there's got to be a science paper written and published. But one of my promises when I arrived here was to reappoint a full-time paleontologist to the museum. And we did that. He's a terrific man called Matt McCurry. And Matt has just made one of the most significant new fossil discoveries in Australia's history. There hasn't been a major fossil discovery in Australia since the mid-1950s. And Matt has just discovered something in New South Wales that is quite remarkable. So that's something, another secret I have. I'm sorry, I'm full of secrets today. I don't mean to be. It's funny you should mention the word secret because that's where I was going next. You said it's $57.5 million restoration project and the state government has kicked in a fair chunk of that, but a big part of that comes down to philanthropy. And I think your little black book is arguably the best secret in Sydney. And if half of the movers and shakers in this state, if not country, could get their hands on your little black book, the way you wrangle money out of squillionaires to donate to the museum, what's your trick? Well, I think I've been lucky, uh, Sandra. Luck always plays a part in everything. But the museum is well worth supporting. And my enthusiasm for it and backed by a great board, I like to communicate with people who are interested in science and education, in art and culture, and say to them, hey, we are just as worth supporting as the art gallery or a performing arts centre like the Opera House. And we've been very fortunate in being able to raise some new funding for the museum and to invite those. And look, if I was a wealthy person, I'd become a philanthropist too. I think that it's terrific that people who've been able to accumulate some wealth give back to the community. You know, we didn't have a long tradition of philanthropy in Australia, but philanthropy in the arts is really starting to become more important. We need that additional funding. So while government funding comes to help the institution, to do all the other things, the special things, we need to gain additional funding. So 
talking to philanthropists uh, who live in New South Wales or across Australia or indeed the world is something I actually really enjoy because I'm very proud of the museum. I'm proud of the work we do. I'm proud of what we're building for the future. I mean, my goal here is to build a truly significant world-class natural history museum that Australia can be very proud of. You know, we've got one in each state of Australia and being the first museum in the nation, I think we occupy a very special place and being called the Australian Museum, we occupy that special place. We collaborate with institutions like the Smithsonian in Washington or the Natural History Museum in London. We're highly regarded. Our collection has 21.9 million objects and specimens in it. It's the largest collection in the Southern Hemisphere, and it was recently valued at over a billion dollars. So we're a significant enterprise, and it's a big responsibility to be the director and CEO here because it's my responsibility under the Trust Act that governs the museum, an act of parliament, to be responsible for the care of that collection. So, you know, it is a big operation here. It's a complex one. And we've got to look after that collection in the best possible way. And the reason is to, it's not just a collection that sits on a shelf. It's researched by our scientists and by visiting scientists. That natural history collection can tell us so much, not just about the past, but also about the current day and the future. We're doing a lot of research here now into the biodiversity impacts of climate change. And we can tell that through the collection about what's happened to these species over time. You know, it's citizen science where the public participate in science. Our Frog ID project is a great example of that. Australia has 240 different species of frogs, but we had no idea what was happening to them. And yet they're among the most vulnerable groups of animals on the planet. And our herpetologist, Dr. Jodie Rowley, who's a frog expert and a half, she's just great. She also does great frog impersonations, which I can't do. But uh, we put together this wonderful citizen science project with a great app for your phone called Frog ID. But there was great take-up, wasn't there, from the public on that one? It was, a, oh. it was a really current, contemporary way to engage with the broader community and get involved with the museum. It, it is, and it's still going, Sandra. Currently, we have over 100,000 people around Australia downloading frog calls when they hear them on the app, which lets us pinpoint exactly where these frog populations are. You know, frogs are identified by the call they make, not by what they look like. So we call it audio DNA. But what's interesting about this now is that before the massive bushfires earlier this year in New South Wales, we were recording frogs. We've been doing it for a year and a half. So we knew where these frogs were. Well, guess what? We have the only up-to-date database of any group of animals in the country that we can monitor now pre-bushfires and post-bushfires. So Jody has actually just won a major government grant from the federal government to go out and do that research because we know, we will know exactly what the impact on the different groups of frog species has been, which is phenomenal. That's really special, really special. You talk about the size of your collection. I had the great privilege and you gave me access to the bowels of the museum just to have a look at the Asia-Pacific Captain Cook artefacts, which was extraordinary. So tell us what percentage is downstairs and what's upstairs. And I guess this is why you can continue to refresh what's on show. There's always new stories and new exhibits to experience. So 
what is in our collection, as I said, there's 21.9 million objects and specimens. A lot of it now is housed off-site, believe it or not. The natural history specimens are on-site, so the scientists can access them every day. But a lot of the other um, collection items, including the cultural collections, are housed in off-site storage. And the reason for that is you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. Have you know? Imagine if this building were, was impacted by fire. But we saw in uh, Brazil a couple of years ago what happened when the Musée de Nacional in uh, Rio de Janeiro burned down, where Brazil lost its natural history and cultural collection, which was just devastating because it was all housed in the one building. So we have dispersed the storage across the city. But in addition to that, um, probably every museum in the world, like ours, has less than 1% of its collection on display at any given time. Because fundamentally, we're a research-collecting institute. So our job is to collect for the nation, for the future, and for that collection to be able to be researched. And then our really wonderful and creative exhibitions people work with our scientists to work out what's going to go on the floor, what are we going to showcase next in our exhibitions. And next year, we have a couple of brilliant ones coming up that we're creating and uh, will allow the public to see more of that collection. So I've tried really hard to put more of it on display. In the Westpac Long Gallery, as I said, we've got the 100 treasures of the museum on display, but probably another um, three or 400 other objects that relate to those on display as well. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Well, Kim, you have reignited my love affair with the Australian Museum and through you I've seen it through a completely fresh and exciting set of eyes because your passion for the museum is obvious to all. But also I think it's so contagious and when I say that, you managed through the gift of the gab, your arm wrestling and verbal wrangling to get the world's most beloved naturalist and um, environmental scientist, I guess, in the world, Sir David Attenborough, out to Australia not that long ago. How you got him here is a kind of fascinating story. (laughs) Do tell. Well, Sir David um, was here for our 190th anniversary a few years back, which was just one of those wonderful times I'll always remember. Sir David uh, was touring the world. This is a man in his 90s who is still as sharp and articulate as he ever was and so curious about the world that his curiosity, I think, has uh, inspired so many people around the world who've watched his programs. And when I learned he was coming to Australia, I wrote to him and said, you know, we'd love you to visit us. And I spoke with the trustees and we agreed to give him an award, our Lifetime Patron Award, which we'd never given to anybody before. We basically created the award just for him. Was that enough to lure him? Well, it was because... In part. 
In part, that's right. We, I said we'd hold a beautiful big lunch for him and present him with this award. And he was so gracious. You know, he doesn't have email. So at this time, I'm writing letters back and forth to him to convince him to come. And I can tell you, Sandra, when I got that letter from him about the third one and opened it and he said, yes, Kim, I'd be pleased to come and accept this award, I jumped up and down and did a little dance because to have Sir David here for our 190th anniversary and to have him talk about this museum and the collection in the way in which he did but we also named another species after him. He's had a number of species named after him over the years, but we named a slug or a, a semi-slug. It's like a snail after him that one of our scientists had discovered. But he was so thrilled with that and honoured. I mean, I know the Lifetime Achievement Award was significant, but he did not stop talking about this slug. Exactly. And what I love about it is, you know, a slug is not something... Most people would get very excited about. That's right. Most people go, oh, a snail, I've got those in my garden. No, this was a very rare one that was found in Tasmania. And he was absolutely delighted because these insects, these creatures, snails aren't insects, it's a mollusk, but all of these small creatures that form the fabric or the scaffolding, if you like, of our biodiversity are intrinsic to its success in the future. And that's what he loved is that here was a mollusk, a semi-slug that represented the importance of biodiversity and why every creature, whether it's a spider or whether it's a frog or whether it's a snail or whether it's a bee, is so important to looking after our natural environment. And the minute we disturb that biodiversity and the minute we upset it, and it's been upset terribly through the bushfires, you know, we think that the, the loss of animals is not just in the billions, it was in the trillions when you take into account the loss of insects that happen there. When you disturb the biodiversity, we're upsetting that very ecosystem in which we live. We're part of it. And part of the museum's mission, of course, is to explain to the public why every creature is so important to the way in which we live. And to respect that more. And, you know, we all want the same thing. I've always said this, that we all just want to breathe clean air and drink clean water and live in a safe and secure environment. Well, that means we have to look after it better. Speaking of the environment, I first met you when I first came to Sydney and you were spruiking Clean Up Australia. You have been passionate about the environment since the day I met you. Where did that passion come from, do you think? I think it was because we travelled a lot when I was a child internationally, so I saw lots of different parts of the world early on. But I remember distinctly being in high school in Sydney at McKellar Girls High, and we were reading a John Steinbeck book called Travels with Charlie. I think I was 14 at the time. And in Travels with Charlie, where John Steinbeck set out to rediscover America, and you know, he travelled through America extensively in his younger years when the country was just developing. And he went back again after it had been completely industrialised and he wasn't happy with what he saw. And he wrote in Travels with Charlie a phrase, I sort of remembered, I may be misquoting it, but he said something like, here the air smells of chemicals and the rivers are choked and poisoned. And for some reason at age 14, that just resonated with me, that pollution, as we used to call it when I was younger, was really having a damaging and lasting effect on our natural environment. And I took myself off to the secondhand bookstore in Manly that afternoon, and I found a book called Pollution. And I sat down and read it. 
and really started to understand at a very young age that the way in which we run our governments, our businesses, ourselves, our consumption, how we pollute the natural environment can have a lasting and devastating impact. And so I didn't pick up the cudgel then and become a youth advocate or anything like that, but it had been worrying me. It it continued to through university. Of course, I went into doing a lot of um, sports promotion through my early career in my 20s, and I worked on surfing and sailing. So I was in touch with the natural environment and the oceans. And I really started to see pollution. And fortunately, um, I was working on the BOC Challenge, the solo around the world yacht race. And in 1986-87, an Australian named Ian Kiernan gained sponsorship and sailed a boat called Spirit of Sydney in the race. I became very um, good mates with Ian during that time. And his environmental light bulb went off during the race. He sailed through the Sargasso Sea in mid-Atlantic and just was shocked by the amount of plastic pollution he saw. And this is in the mid-80s. This is a long time ago now. So he came back and said, years ago, I saw a cleanup in Hawaii of people picking up rubbish on the beach. Do you think we could do that here in Sydney Harbour? And um, I don't know what sort of day I was having, Sandra, but I said, yes, let's do that. That's a great idea. So it was the early 1990s and you co-founded with Ian, Clean Up Australia, then it became Clean Up the World. This became a global campaign. Do you ever look back and sort of pinch yourself and think, wow, I I actually did that? Uh, Not very often. You should. (laughs) I like to um, think about the difference it made and what it, it had impacts on many levels, certainly the positive environmental impact in many communities around the world. In some communities, it was also a health impact. In some communities in India, it really improved community health by raising awareness of what waste could do to a community. So that was important. But more important even was the message of empowerment for people to say, you can change things. You know, we've all sort of grown up in this essence that um, the government will fix things. And for me, clean up was all about people reclaiming that right to be able to change things themselves and say, no, this isn't good enough what's happening right now. We can do better than that. And, of course, we were able to change legislation. You know, I get very frustrated every day when I still see things happening too slowly. You know, this is 30 years ago when the changes could have been made. And some industries and governments haven't taken that step until now. I mean, we're seeing more action now, but there's still a long way to go. And so you've got to keep the pressure up. And how do you do that? How do you keep the community engaged? And now, of course, with the impacts of climate change, when people feel quite helpless about that, how do you keep the public really understanding that their engagement, their understanding, they're exercising their democratic right to talk to governments about improvement is so important. And and that's why one of the pillars for us at the museum in the future is around communicating the environment and communicating environmental solutions. You know, technology is doing so much to improve things. And I'm an optimist. I, I believe that, you know, it's not too late to fix things. And that if we can get that level of community understanding, and yes, it requires pressure on our governments to understand the political will. And Look, I, I'm, I'm a very practical about this sort of thing. I go home every night and turn on my light switches and 
enjoy the benefits of electricity that in Australia at the moment is primarily coal burning. But I know that alternative renewable technologies are out there and that we just need to invest more in them and make the switch. Throughout the whole cleanup campaign, Sir Ian Kiernan was credited with all the glory and rightly so to a degree, but you were there every step of the way. Your work in the environment and the community was acknowledged in 2008 when you were awarded an Officer of the Order of Australia, and I felt that was so overdue. In 2011, you were included in the book The Power of 100, 100 Women Who've Shaped Australia, a wonderful accolade. But I think in our patriarchal society, which still exists, it's often said behind a good man is a great woman. You stood comfortably next to and sat back as Sir Ian Kiernan and received all those accolades. What was it in you that said you were comfortable to take a back seat when really you were a co-founder and deserved the accolades alongside him? Why didn't you stand up and raise your arm at the time? Look, I think that's a really good question and uh, one that's asked of many women. I was quite young at the time, Sandra, but my role was as um, a communicator and as a planner and doer. Ian was the spokesperson and rightly so. It was a partnership. And I think what people have to understand is when you're creating any sort of organisation or business or whatever it might be, you can have partnerships with a whole variety of people and each one is bringing a different skill set to the table. Ian had the initial idea and kernel of this. He was a, a, a wonderful larrikin, a great raconteur, and well-loved by the public as he should have been. And I think he was by far the best person to be front and centre of Clean Up Australia. He was authentic about it, passionate about it. He'd been a professional sportsman as well. He could identify with the full length and breadth of the Australian community. So, you know, that's a very unique set of skills sitting right there. And then when you put my skills and then a lot of other people who are involved as well put their skills together around the table. You get strength in that. So not everyone at every time has to shine and stand out. I think what I'm fortunate doing at that particular time was being a, an engineer in that campaign and being able to craft it and present it and allow Ian to have that platform. And sadly, he passed away a couple of years ago. And I said in his eulogy at his state funeral that, you know, there are so many people, all the volunteers, over half a million people every year stood on his shoulders to do something about our environment. And, you know, that, that they're big shoulders to host, right? Yeah. So I think each of us has a role to play at a different time. I think now that I'm uh, a little bit older, you might say, mm-hmm. Aren't we all? the time I can really use my past experience and use the understanding about how to organise things, how to communicate things, how to make things happen here at the museum. And yes, I can be front and centre here in doing that. So in other words, we each have a time. And I've been very fortunate in my life to have worked with many great people. I mean, the years I spent in America working first for the Discovery Channel and then for National Geographic have stood me well because I worked with many great explorers and scientists through my career and great sports people too. Like I still mentor the wonderful Jessica Watson, you know, the youngest person at the time to sail solo around the world. A remarkable young woman, isn't she? Oh, she's remarkable. 
and Jess is now in her um, late 20s and she's thinking all the time about what it else, you know, she works as an HR professional now, having done a master's degree as well as her undergraduate degree. But I can play a role in helping her achieve her goals through mentoring and many other young people who I mentor, or indeed I can work with my board here and the New South Wales government and others and great scientists here to allow them to flourish and shine. And that's what I'm really about as a person. I'm not about, you know, self-promotion in that sense. I'm about trying to bring people together with me and see if we can achieve something together. You can't achieve anything alone. There is no such thing as being one person who can achieve things. You need a team around you, behind you, in front of you who can achieve things together where you bring all those different skills together. I I think that in Australia we've had some great leaders in the past who I look up to, some great women who inspire me. But I try and spend every day thinking, How can we utilise the great skills that we have here to do an even better job and lift those people up? And and that's where I get my thrill of having tried to make a difference. Well, you certainly made a difference, not just at the museum, but across Australia, if not the world. The cleanup campaign was so long ago, really, when it came to its natural conclusion, even though it it lives on, I think, in all of us, because it raised the consciousness uh, Australia-wide, if not globally. But when you look back, and it's been an illustrious ride. What's been your biggest mistake? Oh, I make those every day, Sandra. <laughs> Probably the last one. You, know, um, you have to make mistakes to learn. And uh, I, I wouldn't say it's one unique thing that I've made a mistake. I, I've, I tend to back my own gut a lot. You know, I, I, I operate a lot on instinct and gut feel, and I believe in trusting that. If someone had told me about um, setting goals when I was in my early 20s and going after those goals, who knows what could have happened? But I, I didn't understand the importance of goal setting back then. I sort of went from this opportunity to that opportunity, did well, and then went to another opportunity that cropped up. So I was always looking to progress. But I think if you really want to achieve in today's world, you've got to have clear goals and go after them. Throughout my life, it's been almost accidental in some respects, the career progression and the things that I've worked on and the opportunities that have presented themselves. And, you know, actually, Kenan used to always say to me, you make your own good luck. And to a a degree, you do. Um, You know, you try and do good things and do good work and apply yourself and hope that others notice along the way. So I've been quite fortunate in that respect. But I think in terms of a life mistake, if you like, I would say not having clear goals when I was younger. And those goals can adapt and change as you get a bit older. But I think if you really want something, you can go after it that way. And it wasn't until later in life that I realized that. Coming to the museum, it wasn't a specific goal I had, but I knew after I came back from the States that I had the capacity to do something. And I said to, to a few friends at the time, you know, I'd really like to run something big and I'd like to make a, a difference, you know, that's solid and that contributes to the community. And I was very fortunate that um, Sam Moston was president of the museum at the time and she spoke to me one evening and said, you know, would you be interested in joining the Museum Trust? I've got to nominate potential candidates to the government. 
And I thought about it overnight and rang her the next day and said, yeah, look, I, I would be interested in that. I think all my life experience would play in well there. And then, of course, I was really lucky again to spend two years on the trust when Catherine Livingston took over as president. And she was a terrific mentor. But when I, I, I wasn't going to apply for the job, hadn't even occurred to me. And it wasn't until the job was advertised one weekend and I was away with some friends and read the job out to them and they all looked at me and they said, Kim, that's you. That's what you should be going for. So I threw my hat in the ring and shock horror, here I am six years later and loving every minute of it. Well, thank goodness you did, Kim, because we're all so excited to see the museum come to life when it reopens. You have had an extraordinary career. I guess I want to go back for a second when you talk about goal setting. And, you know, I mentor some young women and and men as well. And I, like you, have led a very serendipitous route. Um, You know, success for me, however others may perceive it, has come about through opportunity, uh, timing and effort. It's impossible to put an old head on young shoulders and it's easier to say you should goal set. But when you're young, you just don't know what you want to do and what's possible. Don't you think really it's the benefit of experience that allows you to say, look, if only I'd set goals, I could have, you know, reached this point sooner. But would you really? Well, I think, though, if you think about it, like if I'd had somebody who pointed it out to me even, you know, because I didn't know, and which is why I think mentors are so important, that you sometimes need older people with different life experience who can guide you in a way. I think goals should only be things you can't really set goals for longer than five years anyway. But I think at least it might have taken me in a, a career path that was more directional. You use that marvellous word serendipitous just now, describing your own career. And you do need serendipity in life, I think. I like those flashes that occur occasionally when a little opportunity opens up. And it's having the confidence then to take that opportunity. Now, if you're very focused on a goal, and it might be You know, your goal might at the time decide to become a scientist that focuses on zoonotic diseases, you know, like COVID-19. You you might decide that's where you can make a difference in the world and be a great scientist there. But you might go to university and do the course and then go, actually, that's not for me, but this other opportunity is opening up over here. And I think that's what's important. It's to understand that serendipity plays a role, but also that when opportunities open up, that you have the confidence to take them. I remember moving to the States when I was offered a job with the Discovery Channel. And I wasn't young at the time. I was in my late 30s. But I went, you know what? If I don't take this opportunity now that it's been presented and don't go and experience something new, and I thought I was just moving overseas for two years. Well, I stayed for seven uh, working there in National Geographic. But it was that window, that that sliding door moment that opens up when you decide, yes, I'm going to go and do that. I'm going to shake up my life and what I'm doing right now because that opportunity may never come around again. So I think it's being very aware that while not everything will always work out perfectly, but when those serendipitous moments arrive, when those sliding doors open up, do you take the leap? Do you step out? and do something out of your comfort zone. And every time I've done that in life, it's been a good move. And I think that 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 takes gumption. It takes knowing that you've got some level of security behind you. It takes knowing that 
maybe you, you've got a good family that you can rely on or dear friends who you can rely on. But I think having that self-confidence to make those steps is incredibly important. And uh, don't be afraid of failure. I mean, we all make mistakes. We all fail at different times. That's part of life. Well, Kim McKay, thank goodness you took the risk. You were bold enough to chase that job at the Australian Museum because if anyone isn't emboldened, excited and energised about coming to see the Australian Museum when it reopens, they are crazy. Kim McKay, what a joy to talk to you today. Best of luck always in your career and, and we'll watch with interest from afar. Thank you so much, Sandra. Really lovely speaking with you. You have been listening to Short Black, a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cosy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.